uh, nearly 20 years ago or so. It's, it's the most wonderful thing. It's like getting a letter from heaven. I don't know why she didn't send it at the time. I suppose that God wanted me to have it now. I told Don, I thought that Louisa probably meant to put a $50 bill in it. <laughs> but Donald said I can take it up to Louisa in heaven when I, when I see her. Uh, but my goodness, it was such a beautiful, beautiful letter. And, and Cody, it just reminds me of, of Woodburn Baptist Church and how this church has encouraged and, and uh, basically shaped me as, as a minister. Louisa said words so very kind to me in that letter that I promise I did not deserve. I, I didn't deserve that. I wasn't anywhere near what she said I was. Um, but the way she, she and others continued to encourage me uh, just absolutely has changed my life, and, and I'm thankful for her and, uh, and her letter tonight. Uh, and it's just, uh, it's just such a blessing to serve you as pastor. Uh, which brings me to Jonah, chapter 3. The name Jonah means, do you know? It means dove. The name Jonah means dove. It's, it's a word that has to do with peace. It's always a symbol of peace, which is so interesting because Jonah is not a man at peace. There is nothing peaceful ever in Jonah's life. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that the life he lives is such a contradiction of the name he has given, the, the name Jonah, that has to do with peace? This man has no peace. How do you explain the lack of peace in the prophet's life? What would you say? Yeah, he knows God. He knows what God can do, but he will not, will not put his life in God's hands. He will not trust God. Yeah, what else? What would you say? Why does he have no peace? He should have peace. Yeah, he has his agenda, his personal agenda. He has his purpose for his life. God has a purpose for his life, and Jonah will never, ever simply fulfill God's purpose for his life. It's really simple, brothers and sisters. This is the pathway to peace. When you find yourself in God's will, you will be at peace. It doesn't mean you won't have problems. You will have problems. It doesn't mean everything's going to go uh, smooth sailing for you. It, it, it may not, but you will have peace. Peace that passes all understanding, the, the Bible says. God has a purpose, a, a plan for you, and that plan is where you'll find your peace. Jonah will simply not obey God. And even when he obeys, as you'll see tonight, he does it with only half of his heart, and therefore he never, ever has, has peace. It's so hard for us to realize that we are the same way, that God has a plan and a purpose for our lives. You are no accident. Uh, the way God has made you, where you live, the job that you have, uh, the places that you go, the hobbies that, that, that occupy your time, all of these are, are things that God has placed in your life, and God has given you your Nineveh. You understand what I'm saying? God has given you your Nineveh. In, in my case, my Nineveh is Woodburn. Now, that's easy, and it makes sense to us now. I've been here for years. But there was a time when it was very, very hard to see that God was calling me to serve Woodburn, not just for a period of time, but for the whole of my life. Woodburn is my, my Nineveh. And there are times when I, when I didn't necessarily want that to be the case. No offense there, Woodburn. There are times when I wanted to run from, God, from what God had for me. But I promise you, the, the path of peace has always led me straight to this pulpit, straight into your lives. It is fulfilling God's purpose for my life that brings peace. And the same thing is true for you. 
The same thing is, is true for you. Your kid plays soccer. Don't you understand that's not an accident? God puts you at the soccer field every single Saturday, and you have a mission there and a purpose. All of those other team parents that you meet, there's a purpose in that. God has you working at the factory where you work, at the office. That is not an accident. It is your Nineveh. It is where God is, is sending you. Nothing, nothing is accidental. The house where you live, the neighbors that you have, the crazy family that you have, none of that is an accident accident. It's your Nineveh. God has put you where you are now with a purpose. And the only way you'll ever find peace and satisfaction in your life is to fulfill that purpose. Jonah chapter 3. When last we left Jonah, we'll pick up from this morning, Jonah just got vomited up. That's not my word. I'm not being crude. That's the Bible's word. He got vomited up. Now God could have deposited Jonah back on the beach any way he chose. Now, you can't miss the fact that the, the fish in the story is a symbol of God's salvation. Uh, Jonah should have died, and Jonah knows he should have died. God, by his mercy, rewrites his life. He gets picked up by a fish, and he has the first submarine ride in history. You see that? God takes him by submarine back to where he belongs, and the fish vomits him on the beach. And this is where we pick up chapter 3. You would think that by now, having been chewed up and spit out by life, that Jonah would get it, that Jonah would understand. Um, It's never as simple as that, is it? Jonah chapter 3. Then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver the message I have given you. Where have we heard that before? (laughs) Verse 1. Yeah, verse 1. So... Yeah, we've been through two chapters. We've gone 2,000 miles to Tarshish. We have taken a submarine ride in a whale. We've been vomited up, and now we're right back where we started. You preach the sermon. Go ahead. I'll wait for you. You preach it. What's the sermon? Yeah, why don't you just obey God the first time? You're running around all of the, the stuff that you've thrown in. You haven't changed God's purpose one bit. Obey the first time. You will miss a whole lot of mess if you will simply obey God the first time. Do what God says when he says it. You will miss a lot of mess. That's not very poetic, but but that's the sermon. Verse 3. This time Jonah obeyed the Lord's command. Went to Nineveh, a city so large that it took three days to see it all, like Woodburn. On the day Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. People of Nineveh believed God's message, and from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast and put on burlap to show their sorrow. Wow. When the king of Nineveh heard what Jonah was saying, now the king of Nineveh, wait, stop. This is a really bad guy. This is the king of Nineveh. This is a horrible, wicked city, a horrible, wicked king. Understand, we're talking about the ancient ancient kingdom of Assyria. We're talking about like Iraq today. This is Sodom right here, King Sodom right here. This is a really bad guy. When the king of Nineveh heard what Jonah was saying, He stepped down from his throne and took off his royal robes. He dressed himself in burlap and sat on a heap of ashes. Then the king and his nobles sent this decree throughout the city. No one, not even the animals from your herds and flocks, may eat or drink anything at all. People and animals alike must wear garments of mourning, and everyone must pray earnestly to God. They must turn from their evil ways and stop all their violence. You hear that? The Assyrians, Nineveh is giving up all their violence. 
Who can tell? Perhaps even yet God will change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. When God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind, did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. Who's he mad at exactly? God. So he complained to the Lord about it. You all would never do this, but but this is Jonah. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you're a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. Yet when Jonah says it, it sounds like it's a bad thing. You, You hear that? You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. Isn't he a pleasure? Jonah's just a pleasure. The Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry about this? Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city and made a shelter to send under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. What does he want to see? That's what he's hoping for. He wants to see it destroyed. And the Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there, and soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. Hang with it now. This is great. This eased his discomfort, and Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But God also arranged for a worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. And and as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and he wished to die. That ain't the first time he wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. God gets the final word. Then the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly. And died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness. Not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? That's the end. That's how this story ends. Have you ever, ever met anybody like Jonah? You don't have to answer that. Uh, I see a guy like Jonah about every time I look in the mirror. Jonah is so much like us. Uh, Let's go back to the beginning of chapter 3. We're just going to walk through it quickly. Scripture says in verse 3, this time Jonah obeyed. Well, yes, but on a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being the lowest and 10 being the highest, let's rate his obedience. He obeys. Kind of. Rate it for me. 1 to 10. Where would you put his obedience? 3. He gets a 3. Anybody else? 4. I hear 2. How would you describe his obedience? He goes, but he goes defiantly, doesn't he? Yeah, he actually goes. The Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Deliver the message I've given you. This time Jonah obeyed. He goes to Nineveh and he preaches a sermon. His sermon, the whole thing is found in verse 4. What's his whole sermon? Count the words. Forty days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. Eight words. In Hebrew, four words. Four words. Y'all would love for me to to preach a four-word sermon, wouldn't you? Four words. He gives them four words. Four-word sermon. 
His heart is not completely in this now, is it? He obeys, but he only obeys very begrudgingly. He, he does the bare minimum for God. He does what God asks, but he does no more. He delivers a four-word sermon. Now, again, I say that we sometimes might see ourselves when we look at Jonah. Isn't this sometimes us? Have you ever had a kid who was like that? They do what you say, but they obey so close to the line of disobedience that you don't know whether, you, you sure can't praise them, but you, you don't know whether to punish them either. You ever had a kid like that? My parents never did, but your kids probably were like that. Man, I mean, they do what you say, but they do the bare, bare minimum. And that is so how most people seem to approach God. We do the bare minimum for God. What, tithe 10%? Okay, and they tithe to the penny 10%. No more, you're not going to do one penny more. Nothing more than exactly what God asks. You wouldn't want to overdo it, you, you know. So many people, this is the way they approach their lives, the way they relate to God. They'll do what God says, but no more. And there's no joy in it. And this is Jonah. He obeys, but only begrudgingly, only when he has no other options, only when he has to, and then he does it, does it with, with his sorry, sorry attitude. So he delivers this four-word sermon with his rotten attitude, and what happens? You just got to love God. He preaches a four-word sermon that he doesn't even hope coming. I mean, he just really, really blisters them. You're going to be destroyed, and he can't wait for it to happen. This is his attitude in his sermon Repent or you're going to be destroyed. What happens to Nineveh? Revival. They respond to the sorriest preacher and the sorriest sermon ever delivered, and there's a complete revival. How do you explain that? It's still God. It's still God's word. And honestly, most of the time, the preacher is irrelevant. I am always irrelevant. When I'm preaching God's word, it's God's word, and it's God's power, and the preacher's beside the point. And even in this case, Jonah is beside the point, preaches four words, but they're the words of God, and that's all it takes to bring revival to the whole city. I mean, it's amazing. The whole city, the whole city comes to faith. The whole city repents of their sins. They change their evil ways. The king steps down from his throne. He takes off his royal robes, and he puts on what? sackcloth. Kings don't do that. He puts on sackcloth and he sits on a heap of ashes. The king puts on sackcloth and mourns in ashes for his sins. That's what the king does. And then he declares national day of prayer and national day of fasting. And he says, even our dogs and cats are going to fast. That's what he says. This is a total, total revival, total fast. Everybody's going to fast. Even the animals will fast. Everybody's going to wear sackcloth. Even your cattle, he says. We're serious about this. Why is he doing this? What does he say? Where is his faith? Verse 9. Who knows? Maybe God will yet change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. So Jonah's little piddling four-word sermon is a tremendous, tremendous success. And what does God do? God does what God does so well. He forgives. He forgives. He forgives the Ninevites just like he forgave you-know-who, Jonah. But somehow when it's going out in the other direction, Jonah doesn't appreciate it as much. He doesn't really appreciate the forgiveness of the Ninevites. It's amazing, and I really want you to dig into that verse a minute. Verse 10 in chapter 3, when God saw what they had done and how they put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind. 
Can God do that? This is a verse that would give some people such headaches. I mean, their heads would want to explode. They just can't deal with this. But honestly, Scripture speaks in this way in several places. You're just going to have to get used to it. God had a plan, and it was a plan that was contingent upon their continuing in their sin. But when the people responded to God, there was a different plan put in place. God changed his mind, and God does that. It is not that God doesn't have a plan. It is not that God is not sovereign. He is. But God responds to people. Whatever your, your, your philosophy of God, however you view his sovereignty, you have to contend with the fact that God responds to people. He does not make his plans in a vacuum. God does not make his plans without some consideration for what choices people will make. If the people of Nineveh had not repented, he would have utterly destroyed them, absolutely destroyed them, but they repented. But they changed their ways, and therefore God changed his mind about destroying them, and he forgave. I praise God that he is a God of such mercy. I praise God that he is a God who responds to our prayers. If I didn't believe that God responded to me, there'd be no reason to pray. Why would we pray? If God had his mind made up already, then there would be no reason for us to pray. But from cover to cover, Scripture instructs us to talk to God, to pray to God, to repent of our sins. God will respond to us. He will respond to our prayers. There are things that will happen when we pray that will not happen if we don't pray. Do you understand that? Our prayers will change the very will of God. God changes his mind, and therefore Nineveh is going to be saved. Verse 1, chapter 4, this change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord. God cannot win with this guy. Look at this. I'm telling you, I'm a preacher I would love to preach such a sorry sermon to have this kind of response. I would be praising God all over the place if I had led any kind of revival like this. I would, I would somehow want, I would want people to know my name. I was a revival preacher with the great revival, the great awakening at Nineveh. I mean, I'd want that credit, but not Jonah. This makes him so mad. Now, why? Let, let's stop. Get inside his head. Why would this make Jonah so mad? Look what he says. Didn't I say before I left home that you do this, Lord? That's why I ran away to Tarsus. I knew that you were a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. Scripture says this. Psalms 86 says this. But usually when people say this about God, they're praising God. They're saying something good about God, but not Jonah. Jonah does not appreciate that God is this way. I knew that you were slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You're eager to turn back from destroying people. As if that's a bad thing. Why is Jonah so angry? Really two reasons, and they're not insignificant. Number one, he really hates these people. He really, really hates these people. The Assyrians were very, very wicked. And the violence they had done in the world was already reaching the very throne of God. Understand that they were due for destruction. Jonah hates these people. And it's very, very difficult whenever you hate someone so badly, it really bugs you when you see that other people love them. And it's very, very difficult for Jonah now to understand that his God loves the Assyrians. He really hates these people. 
He really hates them. The other thing is, is a basic Old Testament principle when it comes to being a prophet. The Old Testament says that if you're a true prophet from God, what? If you're a true prophet, everything you say will come true. That's what the Old Testament says. That's the test of a true prophet. If you're truly spreading God's word, if you're a prophet of God, then everything you prophesy will come to pass. And now, what does this look like for Jonah? He walked through Nineveh, and he kept screaming to everybody who he could get in their face, Nineveh's going to be destroyed. And now it's not going to happen. So how does that look for Jonah? He looks like a fool. He looks like a preaching fool. But what does God say? God says, simple question, he asked it twice, verse 4 and then again in verse 9. What's God's question? Is it right for you to be angry about this? Now remember, this is the Harris principle in biblical studies. Whenever God asks a question, it's not because there's something he doesn't know. Okay, always remember that. When God asks a question, it's not because there's something he doesn't know. So God says, is it right for you to be angry about this? And then there's this whole scene. It's an amazing, odd kind of thing. Jonah goes out and he sits up on top of a hill where he can see the whole city. What's he waiting for? He's still hoping for destruction. He's still hoping for destruction. So he sits out up there, an amazing thing happens. And notice, God does several things here, and they're all just absolutely thrilling. Uh, in each case, there's a word used. It's in a New Living Translation, it says, God arranged. God arranged for a leafy plant to grow. God arranged for a worm. God arranged for a, for a scorching wind. That word there literally is appointed or, or literally ordained. It's the word used of a king when he appoints a servant or, or appoints someone to do his business. So here is God ordaining, uh, actually living things, non-living things. God just ordaining all of the aspects of his creation to do his will. And this word is used of God throughout the little book of, of Jonah. It's God who also appointed the, the great fish, God who ordained the fish. And it's an amazing thing because here is God who is ordaining all of these creatures, all of these aspects of creation for a mission. He brings them into his purposes. He brings them into what he wants to do in the world. And every single time God picks a fish, God appoints a worm, God appoints a plant, God appoints a wind. Every time God ordains that something have a job for him, what happens in the story of Jonah? It follows the purpose perfectly. The fish does exactly what God asked the fish to do. The plant does exactly what God intended the plant to do. The worm does exactly what God wanted the worm to do. The wind blows exactly where God wanted the wind to blow. And where did God want the wind to blow? A scorching, horrible wind. He told the wind to blow where? Right in the middle of Jonah's bald head. Right there, wind right there. Burn him. Yeah, exactly. And everything that God ordained and everything that God set out with a purpose, it obeys God perfectly except one. In the whole book of Jonah, there's one thing that just won't do what God ordains. And what is that? The prophet. It's Jonah who simply, simply will not fulfill his purpose before God. Simply will not obey. Jonah went out to the east side of the city, made a shelter to send others. He waited to see what would happen to the city and... The Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there, and soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. This eased his discomfort. Now think about this. And Jonah was very grateful for the plant. In this moment, Jonah is sitting here with nothing but bitterness in his heart, 
sitting there. And what does God give him? God uh, ordains, appoints this plant to grow and bring him comfort. In this moment, God gives Jonah comfort. And Jonah is grateful for the plant. But God also uh, appointed a worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. Sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and he wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. So notice, one day, God gives Jonah comfort. The next day, God gives Jonah what? Discomfort. Why does God do that? Why not comfort every day? If we were in an official church business meeting, one of you could make a motion. We could just vote comfort every day. And I'm sure it would be unanimous. We want comfort every day. God knows that we want comfort every day. And surely God loves us. And and God would want us to have comfort every day. Now, wouldn't he? But that's not how the story of Jonah plays out. He gets comfort one day, discomfort the next. Why? Can somebody answer me? Because God's doing a work in Jonah's life. He's trying to teach him, Jack says. God has a larger work. And and God is always doing a larger work in our lives. And this is what you must learn to remember and what you must learn to love. God's larger work in your life. Whatever God is doing, it is to transform you, to, to bless you. God is going to bless your life in ways you've never imagined. But in the process of, of, of transforming you and teaching you and working with you, you will sometimes have days of comfort and sometimes discomfort. Jonah's problem is that he will always, always choose his own comfort. This is what gets him in the mess in the first place. Jonah always wants his way over God's way. Jonah always wants his comfort over anything else God might have for him. Jonah would rather die than to die to self. Do you understand what I'm saying? He would rather die than die to to self. Plant withers, the wind blows, and Jonah says, I just want to die. God, just kill me. Just kill me now. And God says one more. Great question. God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Jonah says what? Yes, angry enough to die. Remember this morning I was talking about how you know when you become one of those practical atheists. How you know when you're a Christian or a believer in name only. And the one thing I said, three things I said, but the last one, which is no concern for people. Jonah wanted nothing to do with people. Jonah doesn't care about anybody, anything but himself. But now at the end of this story, he does seem to care about this plant. And why was the plant so important? Because it brought him comfort. Look at what God says. You feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. Came quickly, it died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? And the question just hangs there. That's how the whole story ends. The question just hangs there. Jonah cared more for a plant than he did for any living soul other than himself. He cared more for a plant. It makes me wonder what we care about. It makes me wonder what is important to us because honestly I'm not sure souls are always that important to us either. 
God says, Jonah, over 120,000 people in Nineveh. And literally the Hebrew says, they don't know their right hand from their left. That's what the Hebrew says. They don't know their right hand from their left. And we don't know what that means. We don't know what it means to say there are 120,000 people that don't know their right hand from their left. The New Living Translation says they're in spiritual darkness. I'm sure it's got something to do with that. But other scholars will say that that must be referring to children. Children are the little ones who don't yet know right from left, the right hand from their left. It's maybe children. God says, Jonah, don't you understand? None of us are a great city. 120,000 kids there. I love that great city. Your heart breaks for a plant. What breaks your heart, brothers and sisters? What really gets you? What gets to your heart? Some of you, it's money. It's all about money for you. It's about work and work and work and, and money and money and money. It's about a job or it's about a house. Or for some of you, it's all about relationships. It's about how many friends you can have, Facebook friends, fake friends. It doesn't matter. You just want friends. You want relationships. I don't really know what matters to you, but, but this question at the end of Jonah, it just hangs there. It just hangs there. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? One little habit that God has throughout the book of Jonah, he keeps calling Nineveh a great city. Now, on the one hand, it's a wicked city. It's an evil city, and God sees its sin. God knows it's evil. God is prepared to destroy Nineveh, but he still sees it's a, it's a great city. This is so like God. He sees the sin, but, but he also sees the greatness there. He sees something that has so much potential there. And God says, I just can't walk away and give up on such a great city. Of course they're wicked, but they've turned back to me. It's a great city. I love God for this because he looks at me the same way. He looks at Jonah the same way. Jonah is this impossible, incorrigible. Jonah is this stubborn, bitter, racist, ugly prophet who will not listen to God, will not obey God, but somehow God continues to speak his word into his heart. Somehow God continues to shade this man when the sun is beating down. Somehow God continues to wrestle and wrestle with Jonah because he knows as ornery and bitter and impossible as Jonah is, Jonah could be a great man. Jonah could be a great, great preacher. As you read the book of Jonah, remember, the question is not, can a man be swallowed whole by a fish? That's not the question. The question for you is, has my life been swallowed whole by God? Because when God looks at you, he sees greatness. When God looks at you, he sees your sin. He sees your habits. God knows you better than any other person, better than you know yourself. God knows you. He knows your wickedness. He knows everything about you. But he also knows what he's put in you. And he has put greatness in you. God wants you to give your life to him, to let him swallow you up whole so that you can become the man, become the woman that God has created you to be. You may be a sinner. Of course you are. Of course I am. Of course we're ornery. Of course we don't halfway listen to God. Of course we hardly ever worship and rarely follow him, but somehow God continues to wrestle with us. He continues to call us into his purposes. He continues to look at us and see something great that he has put in us. So at the end of the story, God's question just hangs there. God's question just hangs there. Why shouldn't I care, God says. 
Why wouldn't I care about all of those people? We need to learn to care like God cares. We need to learn to see the greatness in the world around us the way God sees the greatness in the world around us. We need to see the greatness in this church that God sees when he looks at this church. You need to understand that there's even a greatness in you that God sees. Nobody else can see. But if you will let God swallow you up whole, he will bring that greatness out for his own glory, for his great purposes. Let's have a word of prayer and then we'll have one more hymn to respond. Let's pray. God, only you could look down at a city like Nineveh and see greatness. Only you could look down to a man like Jonah and see a prophet. Only you could look down on a man like me and see a preacher. Oh God, only you, only you have that kind of heart, those eyes to see greatness. Oh Lord, we want to have your heart. We want to have your eyes. God, we want to see ourselves the way you see us. We want to see the people around us the way you see the people around us. God, we want you to swallow us up whole in your purposes. Oh, God, forgive us. Because we don't usually pray until there's no other options left for us. We don't usually pray until we're flat of our back. Oh, God, help us. Because we don't usually obey you until we have no other options, until all of our plans have run out, Lord. We don't always seek your purposes until we've run out of purposes. God, help us. Only you could look down on people like us and see great servants that you want to use. So God, tonight, help us to be great servants that you can use. God, we will surrender our comfort. We will surrender our way so that you can have your way with us. Make us tonight, Lord, completely, wholly devoted to you. In Jesus' name we pray.